great, and we will never, never grasp that fully um, in this life, but we can grow in our understanding of his greatness and goodness. Please open your Bibles to 1 Timothy chapter 3. 1 Timothy chapter 3. Children are excused for children's church. We're to read the first seven verses of 1 Timothy chapter 3. The saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not a drunkard, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his own household well with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. But if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? He must not be a recent convert, or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders, so that he will not fall into disgrace, into the snare of the devil. Let's pray. Lord God, Lord, as we look to your word, and we look to the standards that you have set for your leaders in your church, for the, for the men who are godly, Lord, we just uh, pray that you would Help us with eyes of faith to receive this, to make it our ambition, our goal, to, to live up to these standards, to encourage others to. Lord, we just pray that you would give the increase now. In Jesus' name, amen. By way of a brief overview of where we've been in 1 Timothy, um, we'll remember that the theme verse is in chapter 3, why Paul wrote this letter. He tells us pretty clearly. In chapter 3, verse 14 and 15. He writes to Timothy, I hope to come to you soon, but I am writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. So Paul hopes to, plans to come to Ephesus shortly, and in the event that he's delayed and unable to, he's got some things that are of such import that he writes this letter to Timothy, authorizing Timothy to begin Um, the program. And in chapter 1, we saw that the program primarily was about controlling truth, um, charging certain people not to teach novel, controversial doctrines that breed disputes and quarreling and speculation rather than producing godliness and love. And we talked about the connection between truth and love, how truth and doctrine rightly understood produces holiness and love And holiness and love guard truth. There's a sort of cyclical relationship. And then in chapter 2, Paul moves to talking about church order, having this foundation of the importance and priority of truth. He wants the congregation, when it congregates, when we come together, to be praying, prayerful people, not just for our own, not just for those in our sphere of influence, but for the world for kings and rulers and all types of people because we learn the gospel is for all types of people, not just one tribe, tongue, nation, or people. The Lord is calling for himself and making a people from every tribe, from every tongue, 
from every nation. And so our prayers should go out that way. And, and then moving on, he begins to talk about how the men and the women should be ordering themselves as they gather together. The men lifting holy hands, not in quarreling. Likewise, the women in, in decent apparel, modest dress. And then from there, he talks about further roles. And last week, we looked at the hard saying, hard from our culture's point of view. But I hope as we looked at it and saw the intent from Scripture, an actual beauty emerge, that it is not in God's design for the women to lead the church. God has given them other spheres of influence, other spheres of ministry. Which then brings us this week, if, if for the, you ladies who felt like the last week and a half has been focused on you, men, the spotlight's on you from here on for chapter 3. As Paul now turns to the qualifications for leadership in the church. Um, 1 Timothy 3 and Titus 1 are really the two lists. They're nearly identical for the qualifications for the office of elder and overseer. And so we're to dive in looking at this, but I hope that we will see that this passage is, is more than simply a list, a checklist um, for a few certain people in the body, but rather something for all of us. Um, in verse 1, we come to our second trustworthy saying. If you turn back to chapter 1, verse 15, this phrase, a trustworthy saying, is found there. Um, in chapter 1, verse 15, the saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. And when we dealt with that, we recognized that these trustworthy sayings, they only occur in the pastoral epistles. They occur five times in 1st, 2nd, Timothy, and Titus. Um, represent early Christian slogans, doctrinal statements. Just as um, Mike Doty explains that the time of the Reformation, when written materials were not readily available, they would teach truth in song. There's a long scriptural tradition of teaching truth through rhyming, mnemonic devices. Many of the Psalms are written in an acrostic fashion with each subsequent line picking up the next letter of the Hebrew um, alphabet so that you could memorize it. And this trustworthy saying in chapter 3, verse 1, actually rhymes in the Greek. Atis episkopos orgetai kaluergu epithumai. Isn't that catchy? Um, but actually, actually one translation, I think it's the Net Bible, brought that over into English, which I thought was very good of them. And they translated verse 1. This saying is trustworthy. If a man, an overseer, desires to be a noble task, desireth he. I thought that was pretty good. It rhymes. But that's, that's the point. This is, this is a slogan. This is something that's supposed to be memorable, easy to roll off your tongue. Which, of course, seems odd because why would a church need this to be prominently known? In fact, the content about desiring to be an elder being a good thing um, seems so odd to some commentators that they try to attach this to what comes before. But when you look at it, especially in Greek, it's clear which one of these is a slogan, which one of these is a saying. And, and clearly, it's, it's verse 3 and what follows. And so it's interesting for us to stop and just think, what circumstances would produce such a slogan? And we can speculate, but it probably to us initially doesn't seem that important. I doubt we'll be running around remembering this, repeating it to each other. But, but here's the thing. 
What this is telling us is that desire to be an elder, desire to be an overseer in the church is a good thing. It's a good desire. Um, I've been in churches where the kiss of death is any letting on that you have any desire to lead or do anything. Um, I've been in the church where it's kind of, we'll, we'll talk to you. We'll, we'll come find you if we want you in leadership, but don't you knock on any doors. That's not what Paul says. Paul tells the men, and he, he affirms the validity of the statement that if a young man, if a man desires to be an overseer, that's a good thing. And we've encouraged, and we are still encouraging in this body, um, the men here to prayerfully consider if that might be a ministry that God is calling them to and to let that desire be known so that we can shepherd it, so that we can um, cultivate that. When I, when I first came here about f- five years ago, a little over five years ago, I told the elders, hey, I don't, I don't claim to be qualified to be an elder, but I have a desire to be one. Would you examine my life? Would you um, keep an eye on me and give me some feedback and let me know if and when you think that um, that's something that I would be qualified for? Um, and I did that in keeping with this passage. It's a good thing. Now, maybe another reason why this saying might be necessary is maybe it's possible, and again, theorizing um, at a certain point becomes, you know, difficult, but maybe this was just something the men weren't interested in. Um, like I said last week, women outnumber men in churches. Women outnumber men in reading of Christian books. And so maybe this slogan was to remind the men that amongst all the pursuits that you could throw yourself into, your work, your career, your toys, your whatever. Um, church leadership is a noble calling. It's a noble calling. It doesn't mean that everyone who has the desire is qualified. The qualifications are, are quite clear. But before we move on, just dealing with that first blank, that title here, overseer, is probably not one you hear very often. I don't know if anyone in our church has introduce himself, hello, I'm Overseer Bob, you know, I don't, I don't know if people go by that title, so I think it's important to recognize that Overseer equals Elder equals Pastor. Overseer equals Elder equals Pastor, that if you'll turn in your Bibles to Acts 20, you'll see that these are interchangeable terms. Some of them reference the office, some the function, but they're talking about the same thing. Um, Pastor Gary, a year ago, about a year ago this time, did a two-part series on eldership, and I will refer you to that for a more exhaustive treatment. It's on our website. You can look it up. But in Acts chapter 20, Paul is calling together the elders, the overseers at the church at Ephesus, as he's on his way to Jerusalem. And as he calls them in verse 17... Now from Miletus he sent to Ephesus and called the elders of the church to come to him. Now there's our first term. He called the elders. And then he talks, and we'll skip ahead to verse 28. Not verse 20, verse 28. And here, talking to the elders, he says, Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. So there we get elder equals overseer. He called for the elders, and he reminds them the Holy Spirit made them overseers. You see, you see that interchange. And they're overseers over the flock, which is where the pastoral shepherding concept comes in. Turn to 1 Peter chapter 5, just to make this link even more explicit. This is what we're talking about. Overseeing has to do with the oversight given to the church. Elder is a tie-in with the Old Testament elders. And shepherd refers to function, a shepherding pastoral heart. In 1 Peter 5, 
chapter 5, verse 1, Peter writes, So I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is to be revealed. Shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight. And there are all three terms. Oversight, overseeing, shepherd, and elders. They're one group. They're one group. Now we'll see later on in 1 Timothy that amongst the elders there can be distinction between full-time elders, those who labor in word and doctrine. We'll get to chapter 5. We'll deal with that. But it's important to understand that whether we're talking about elders, overseers, or pastors, we're talking about one thing, one function, one office. And the elders at your church, to varying degrees, are all doing the same thing. Um, we are all shepherding, providing oversight um, to varying degrees as our gifts allow. So, that said, let's move on to the qualifications. And actually, at this point, I'm probably not going to say much more about the job and the function of elders. The reason for that is twofold. One, just recently in the last year, Pastor Gary did two messages that are explicitly on what are elders, what do they do. And the second is that in our preaching schedule, after we finish 1 Timothy, we're going to spend four or five weeks in the Psalms, and then we're going to dive into Titus. And right off the bat, after the greeting, in Titus, you get to the qualifications of elders. And so, we're, we're to be at this topic again sometime in the spring. And at that time, I plan to really dive into, okay, what are elders? What do they do? The thing I want to highlight here is that the qualifications of elders really are just the qualifications of being godly men. It's just a, it's a combination package where you get godly men with wisdom and a desire you have eldership. It's, it's as if the Apostle Paul told all of us to run as hard and as fast as we could in that direction. And then he tells Timothy and Titus to come along to find the front runners. And amongst that group, those men who have a desire for the office, those are your elders. You see, if, if you don't grasp that, then you'll think this list is really just for a small group of people. And maybe some of you already think this means you can, you know, sort of check out because this doesn't apply to you. Well, it does. There's not a single qualification on this list that is not commanded to all believers. Um, in fact, they're kind of extraordinary for how ordinary they are. Basic godliness, basic holiness, basic maturity, basic wisdom. And yet, it's not nearly so easy as it may appear. So, for you men here, this is, this is the standard. This is God's standard for mature masculinity. We're doing our tough men class, which has been awesome. We've had 22 men each week show up. And our very first week, we looked at the question, what is biblical masculinity? Well, in many ways, 1 Timothy 3 is a picture of that. For you wives, this, this is something you can encourage your husbands in, as well as qualities that are for every Christian. This is what you should train your, your sons to be. And what you should train your daughters to look for in a husband. These are the qualifications that mattered. This is God's measuring stick for maturity and godliness in men in the church. And it's from this measuring stick that we find our leaders. So that's, that's what I want to look at. I want, I want this to sort of complement the last two weeks as we looked at femininity and womanhood. What that looks like in the church. To This is what mature, godly manhood looks like in the church. So this is for everybody. So let's dive in. Um, point number two. 
above reproach. This, this, this is, Paul says, it is necessary. And in the Greek, it's clear that this is the primary category, above reproach. And everything else that follows really explains what that means. Above reproach. The, the concept behind above reproach is not, and here's your blank, indictable. Not indictable. Literally, it means not able to be held. And the concept is this. It's not sinlessness. Of course, then no one would be qualified. But rather, the thought that in the following categories, no charge made against such a man would stick, would stand. Another way to look at it is these, these men have to be able to model, to some degree, these character qualities. Not perfectly, but in some useful sense that they model the positive character qualities here. So that's what above reproach means. Not indictable. That a charge would not stick in the following categories. And then he goes to explain what those categories are. So the first one, the top of the list both here and in Titus, is the husband of one wife. Now this is the most debated, controversial qualification in the whole list, hands down. And there's many interpretations of what this means. Literally, it's a one-woman man. That's, that's not the blanks. That's just literally what it means. A one-woman man. And so speculation is run that this rules out polygamy. Um, that this is someone who's not been divorced. That this is someone who's not remarried. That this is someone who must be married. All of those, I think, miss the mark. For two reasons. The first is all of those don't speak to character. They just speak to status. And if you look at the rest of the list, it's character that we're going after. So it would seem odd to me amidst gentle, not quarrelsome, kind, hospitable, married. That, that would just seem odd to me. Just me. But more importantly, and I think proving this fact, if you turn over to chapter 5, um, turn over to chapter 5, verse 9, we get the qualifications for the widow's list, where the exact same expression in reverse is found. Now, the widows are not one man, one woman man. They are one man women. Um, in verse 9, well, let a widow be enrolled if she is not less than 60 years of age, having been the wife of one husband, having been a one man woman. Now, it's unfortunate that the ESV and the New American Standard puts it in italics, puts having been. It's just literally being a one man woman. See, even after her husband dies and she's a widow, she still is a one-man woman. And this gets back to what this is. It's a character quality of fidelity and faithfulness. The blanks here is a faithful husband. A one-woman man is a faithful husband. You can be married and be an atrocious husband. Right? If it's just a box checking, married, check. Not a polygamist, check. That's not speaking to character. What we're talking about here is character, fidelity, faithfulness. It's a much higher standard. A one-woman man. This is someone whose heart is not going after other women. This is someone who's devoted to his wife, who has eyes only for his wife, who's poured himself into his marriage. Now, Paul is assuming here at this point that the, what was true until actually relatively recently, that adulthood pretty much meant married. You know, the gift of celibacy aside, the adulthood pretty much meant married. So he's assuming that the men in the church are, for the most part, married. Um, I don't think he's dealing here with the gift of celibacy. But he is assuming that that's the normal pattern for life. And, and most men will marry. So that's what he's assuming here. 
And here he's calling them, and he's calling us men, to be faithful husbands. To be husbands who, who pour ourselves into our marriage. Again, that's what's so exciting about 22 men consistently coming um, to learn, to be trained how to grow in being husbands and fathers. I mean, that is so exciting to know that in this church, the men take this task seriously. There's a really cute story about Winston Churchill. And I know that cute and Churchill don't normally go together. But um, this one's, this is a cute one. This is a cute one. He was, uh, towards the end of his life, he went to a uh, dinner party in London And at the dinner party, each of the guests was asked the question, who would you be, who would you choose to be if you could not be who you are? Who would you be if you could not be who you are? And Churchill answered last, and of course, everyone was waiting to see, and he stood up, and he said, should I even try to impersonate him? No, no, I won't. Um, And he said, if I had to choose to be someone other than who I am, and here he paused, and he reached down, and he picked up his wife's hand, that I would choose to be Mrs. Churchill's second husband. See, I told you it was cute. I told you it was cute. But that's, that's the mentality, man. That's the mentality. Don't take your wives for granted. Don't take your marriages for granted. Cherish the wife of your youth. Pour into your marriage. Be a Christ-honoring husband. Second quality of mature masculinity from which we find our leaders is disciplined. Disciplined. And this is really the next three, um, the next three words that Paul supplies to describe these men. Sober-minded, self-controlled, and respectable. Now, sober-minded speaks to sort of being level-headed, vigilant. One commentary I read said it's kind of like the way you walk when you're in a slightly seedy part of town at night. You're not freaking out and paranoid, but you're definitely alert. You're not walking, texting. You know, you're, you're, you're aware of what's going on. You're vigilant. And, and it's important for men and for church leaders and for husbands and fathers to be vigilant, to be alert, to be on their guard for things that could endanger the flock and their families. Self-controlled. Now this is the exact same word given to the women back in chapter 2. So again, there's a lot of overlap here. Godly femininity, godly masculinity, there's a lot of overlap. Um, it means the ability to control desires or appetites. It's to, have, it's to have those parts of your mind and your life under control. We live in a culture where frequently people say, I just couldn't help myself. A culture that says, follow your heart, be the real you. And scripture says, no, the heart's deceitfully wicked. Proverbs 25 28 says, like a city that is broken into with no walls is the man who has no control over his own spirit. We live in a world and a culture where people have no control over their own spirit. When a strong passion, when a strong desire rises up within them, they are helpless but to do it. But the fruit of the spirit is self-control. These these men are self-controlled. And they're respectable. Again, the exact same instruction given to the ladies. We get this from the word cosmos, order, as opposed to chaos. For men, it means orderly, well-mannered, dignified. You know, again, we live in a culture that likes to uh, elevate youth to the point of having adults acting like children at times. There's a whole culture of kid-alt. It's not godly. It's not cute. It's, it's, I'm sure you know people who are like this, but 
Paul wants the men in the church, leading men in the church, to be respectable, dignified, self-controlled, sober-minded. You know, there's a war on for souls. And as we're going to see at the end of this passage, there's an enemy, the devil, who is seeking to devour faith. And so it behooves us to be on our guard, to be alert and vigilant, disciplined. Next, ministry-minded. Godly man is ministry-minded. And here we see two things, hospitable and able to teach. Let's look first at hospitable. Now, literally, hospitable, philo-xenos, philo, Philadelphia, love, brotherly love, xenos, xenophobia, strangers. A lover of strangers is what hospitality means. Hospitable, a lover of strangers. And this is, this is a oftentimes overlooked Christian imperative. Six times in the New Testament, the church is commanded to exercise hospitality. Um, and it's an important, important qualification. And oftentimes we think of this simply as, a, as sort of the sphere of women. But it's missing the picture. Hospitality is about opening your home up. And opening up your home, not to your friends who you know well, but to people who you may not know so well. Um, remember the parable in Luke 14 that Jesus spoke. He said to the, also to the man who had invited him, when you give a dinner or a banquet, do not invite your friends or your brothers or your relatives or rich neighbors, lest they also invite you in return and you be repaid. But when you give a feast, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed because they cannot repay you. For you will be repaid at the resurrection of the just. You see, hospitality, biblically, a lover of strangers, is more than simply having your family, having your good friends over frequently. That, that's a good thing. But what this virtue is going after is something more than that. How open is your home? How open is your table? How free do you feel to invite others who are not exactly like you? It's so easy in the church where we can sort of form groups and cliques and we can pick people we're going to love and be friendly to, but the whole beauty of the church is that it's filled with people who are not like you, not like me, but every tribe, every tongue, every nation, every people. And hospitality is about inviting all those people over, getting to know those people. And men, this is something you're to be leading in the home. This isn't something you can slough off to your wife. This, this is the quality of godly masculinity. An open home, an open table, a lover of strangers. A lover of strangers. And that's where ministry gets done. Now, ministry doesn't, I don't think, happen in this building as much as it does in our homes as we gather together, as we meet, as we live out our life. It certainly doesn't happen in the workplace near as much. I think the crucible for discipleship making, the forge in which relationships form, is the home more often than not. And that's not going to happen if people are not in your home. So, so just something to be thinking about, getting on your heart, praying about how God could use you to do this. just want to encourage you to, to look outside the borders of your circle of friends. This, this church is full of people not like you. And, and the glory of God is in that. God's goodness is in that. And reach across some of the boundaries of age, of, of background, and get to know the body of Christ. And reach out to your neighbors and share the gospel and, and have ministry. Next, godly maturity is able to teach. 
able to teach. This, this word for able to teach occurs here and in 2 Timothy 2.24 only. Skill with the word. Now you may think, aha, this is a qualification that is not commanded to all believers. It's not on the list for deacons. We'll see that next week. But all believers are indeed commanded to grow in their ability to speak the truth and love and teach. You don't need to turn there, but Colossians 3.16 says this. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. See, all believers are to be letting the word dwell in them, and as the word dwells in them, as they soak it up, they are going to be in their speech every day, teaching each other and admonishing one another. This is something that we're all to be doing. If you're going to be a parent, you need to be able to be growing in your ability to teach your children. Evangelism is teaching the gospel to unbelievers. And so again, I think this might be something that slips off the radar of some men. Is it your goal to grow in the knowledge of the word so that, not just for your own edification, that, that's, that's not enough, but to grow in your knowledge of the word for your own edification and the ability to communicate it to others. That, that is the standard that, that God is setting for us. That is the goal that we should have. And I just want to challenge, and I, and I believe this is a challenge that the men in this church are taking up. Um, the, the remarkable turnouts we've been having to our Tough Men programs speak to that. That this is a church with men who want to grow in the knowledge of the word, who want to grow in speaking the truth in love. But I just want to challenge us all to do it and to do it more. Um, it's our task to fundamentally given to us to raise and teach our children. Our task to shepherd and lead our wives. And we can't do that if we don't know the word, and we can't do that if we can't communicate the word. Now true, elders, pastors, overseers are those who are specially gifted in that way. That is true. But this is again something that all of us should be growing in. And Paul's telling Timothy to go grab the front runners. To go grab the front runners. Must be able to teach. Part of what that means in Titus is this. Speaking of the qualification of elders, he says it this way in Titus 1.9. An elder must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also rebuke those who contradict it. You know, it's not enough to know the truth. It's to be able to distinguish truth from error is important. To be able to identify error because our culture and the wisdom of this world is filled with error. Being able to spot it and see it communicate it. This is, this is a, an important quality of godly masculinity. This is an important quality for godly man, and this is a necessary quality for godly church leadership. So ministry-minded, disciplined, a faithful husband. Next, family leading, verses 4 to 5, family leading. Let's just read those. Oh, no, I skipped over. Sorry, I skipped over some. My mistake. Sorry, point D. Temperate. Temperate. And, I, and this, I think, covers not a drunkard, not quarrelsome, not violent, but kind. Um, if disciplined spoke to mental organization, I think this temperate, which is defined as exercising moderation and self-restraint, speaks to sort of the appetites, the passions not a drunkard, not, not someone who, when their body cries out for, for drink, can rein that in and say, no, 
and I'm going to control my body. Not someone who when fits of rage comes upon him, it bursts out, but has his temper under control. Cool-headed. Not someone who resorts to violence to resolve conflict. That is kind. Temperate. Again, the picture of masculinity in our world, if you go to the movies, is a real man is someone who can whoop up on other men. And that's as may be. But this isn't the recourse for godly men in the church. Violence, quarreling, literally not a brawler or a striker, not a drunkard, kind. Again, the fruit of the Spirit, kindness. This is mature masculinity. Um, Again, our culture has something entirely different to paint here. And point E, content. Content, not a lover of money, but content. And I, and I get this notion of content from chapter 6. If you turn over to 1 Timothy 6. We'll pick it up in verse 6. Now there is great gain in godliness with contentment. For we brought nothing into the world, and we cannot take anything out of the world. But if we have food and clothing with these, we shall be content. For those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. So not a lover of money. Well, the put on is contentment. Contentment. Paul says, Godliness with contentment is great gain. It's so easy to think, if we just made a little more money, if we just lived in a little bigger house, if we just had a little better car, I just got a promotion at work, then everything would be okay. Then I'd be happy. Then it would all come together. Paul says, no, contentment's about treasuring Christ. Contentment is about being at peace with who you are. If you're not content now, no raise, no new car. It's going to fix that for you. Because God wants you content in him. Not in his things, but in him. And so a godly man does not love money. And God's probably given some of you money. That's praise God. When we get to chapter 6, he'll have instructions for the wealthy and the rich. Having money is not a bad thing, but wanting to have money is the problem. Let's distinguish that. Um, it's the desire for money. That's the problem. Now we get to family leading. Verses 4 and 5. Um, he must manage his own household well with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? And this word for manage literally means to stand in front. To stand in front. To lead. And the picture is these men are standing in front of their families. So whatever harm is coming at their family, it's got to come through them first. It's a picture of spiritual leadership spiritual, physical protection, providing, leadership. They're standing in front of their families. It's the same word used in chapter 5, verse 17, of the function of elders in the church. The elders, he says, who rule or manage well. And it goes on. Um, 
Family leading. This is what masculinity looks like, men. It's leading your families, standing in front of your families, cherishing your wives, being disciplined, ministry-minded, temperate, content, and leading your families. And now we look at the children. Next, children obedient and dignified. And, And this is nothing more than simply fulfilling God's instruction to all men, all fathers, in Ephesians 6. Verses 1 to 4, children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother, for this is the first commandment with a promise, that it may go well with you, and you may live long in the land. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. So a mature, godly man is someone who's taking that responsibility seriously, who's training up, discipling his children. Again, Bible assumes women will be spending more time with the children, but it is univocal. It says in one voice that it's the fathers who are fundamentally tasked with the discipling of the children. So again, this is not something we can shrug off to our wives. In Deuteronomy 6, in Ephesians 6, it's the fathers who are tasked with this. Children who are obedient. Literally, obedient means it's a military term for lining up in rank under authority. Dignified means holy, dignified, honorable. Not, again, not perfect, sinless children. Um, but, but the evidence that a man is, is standing in front of and leading his home, managing his home well, and the evidence is seen in the fruit that it bears. And of course, different children are, are different difficulty. The point here, again, for the qualifications of an elder is that you could look to this man and learn something. Man, you could really learn about raising children from Bob. His kids aren't perfect, but man, you could learn something about that from him. Just look at the time he puts into that. Look at the fruit it's bearing. That, that's the point. This is, these are character qualities. These are skills, godly fruit that are being born. Um, It's less about a bar reached and more about maturity and character. And third, we see the church as a family of families. The church as a family of families. And where I get that from is the rhetorical question he asks in verse 5. He says, if a man doesn't know how to stand in front of or manage his household, how can he shepherd the church of God? How can he lead the church of God? And the assumption here is that there's an overlap. There's an overlay between the church and family. And we all get this. I mean, after all, we're all brothers and sisters in Christ, right? There's family language. Down in verse 15, Paul writes that he wrote, we saw this earlier, so that we'll know how to conduct ourselves in the household of God. Father needs to be able to manage his household. Later, elders are managing the household of faith in chapter 5, verse 17. And the concept is this. The church is nothing more than a family of families. It's a family of families. And so the same types of skills that are required to deal well with a family are the exact same types of skills required to deal with the family of families. Paul's argument here from the lesser to the greater. How can you possibly shepherd the household, the family of God, if your own family is in disarray, is the assumption of the argument. So we see again this picture that the church is a family of families. And that explains in many senses all of the familial language used to describe it in our relationships to each other as brothers and sisters in Christ. 
Next, we see that mature masculinity is mature and humble. Mature and humble. Verse 6. He must not be a recent convert, or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. And here, the point is maturity, which only time brings, humility that only time brings, is another mark of godliness. It's a necessary mark for leaders. The condemnation of the devil simply meaning the condemnation that the devil received. The devil in pride vaulted himself up to be an equal with God. And the danger, if you take some new believer, and sometimes people when they get saved, it's evident their giftedness, it's evident their zeal. There can be a temptation to put them in positions of ministry, to put them in positions of leadership. That's a bad idea. It's a bad idea. There should be some time for testing, approving, see character born out in time. And so we learn from this that humility and maturity are very important. Humility and maturity, very important qualities in godly men. And finally, you must have a good reputation with outsiders. Now the reason why this is a separate number as opposed to H is because it's the only other qualification that receives the it is necessary and, and so this whole list is sort of sandwiched with above reproach, which sort of means in the church, a good testimony, unindictable. And here, a good reputation with those outside. And that kind of sandwiches the list. Um, a good reputation, a good testimony with outsiders. Literally, a good testimony. And avoids the snare of the devil. And here, this is the snare the devil might lay. And we all see what happens when the media and our world gets a hold of some shady dealings in the life of of the pastors and elders of churches and the havoc that it can run in defaming the name of Christ. Um, and so Paul makes it clear that not only do you have to be thought of and, and be regarded as above reproach in the church, but in the community, in the world, there needs to be a corresponding good reputation. Not that the world's going to love everything we stand for, but you shouldn't be known as a cheat, as a liar. Um, you should be known as someone with character even if they attack what we believe. And, and this is really the marks of maturity for, for biblical manhood in the church. This is, this is what we're looking for in godly leaders. It's this list, personal holiness, ministry-minded, disciplined, content, temperate, family-leading, mature and humble, combined with a desire equals an elder. That, that's, that's the package. Um, the body recognizing that giftedness, recognizing that holiness, recognizing the usefulness that the Lord has given this person and their own desire. Um, and I just want to make two observations in closing on this list. And the first is God's high priority for our holiness and character. God's high priority for our holiness and character. What's remarkable about the list is how unremarkable it is. I mean, think about it. There's nothing on here about having gone to seminary. There's nothing on here about um, being able to speak Greek, read Greek. Nothing on here about how many people you've led to the Lord, how much of the Bible you've memorized. It's remarkable for how unremarkable it is. Um, now, I'm a firm believer that the common, if you will, fruit of the Holy Spirit of holiness is actually very rare and hard to find. It's incredibly hard to fake. You can't get it quickly. Um, but it's not flashy. And so what, what 
Paul is, is telling Timothy to look for is just godliness. Godly men. They don't, they don't need to be extraordinary in any other way other than their holiness, their maturity, their self-discipline, their knowledge of the word. And again, we, we want to think of something flashy, something extravagant, something notable. It's just the fruit of the Spirit and maturity and wisdom and holiness and godliness put together. And yet, that's incredibly hard. If you don't make this your goal and your plan now, you're not going to arrive at it overnight. It takes a while for fruit to bear and to grow. So again, if, if you feel convicted in this list, pray that God would, would grant repentance, that God would change your heart and your mind, and then over time begin to try to bear this fruit out. It, it won't be quick. It won't be super noticeable. God will notice. But it's what matters. This is the measuring stick that matters. Not how much money's in the bank, not what type of car you drive, not how big of a house you live in. This is the measuring stick that matters, men. The second point, I just want you to look, see God's high priority for our marriages and our families. Now last week we saw that, that marriage is a picture, in some senses, of the triune God. Where the two become one, who are equal in, in being and yet ordered in their function. You go to Ephesians 6 and you see that marriage is a picture of the gospel, a picture of Christ's relationship to the church. It should not surprise us then that at the center of these qualifications is the family. And the very first qualification under blameless is a faithful husband. The one place Paul asks a rhetorical question is about the home. And, and rhetorical questions, just bear with me, rhetorical questions serve very different functions when you use them in person versus in writing. If you're asking a rhetorical question in person, they're generally used to gauge how well your audience is tracking with you, right? And see, some of your heads just nodded. That's exactly how it works. But that's not how it works in writing. See, when you write a rhetorical question, you have no way of judging head nodding. So in writing, rhetorical questions are generally used when the author most thinks his reader will agree with him. It's your strongest point. It's the most self-evident point. What does Paul, therefore, think the most obvious and self-evident point in his list of qualifications is? Well, it's if you can't manage your own household, how can you manage the household of God? That, that's Paul's strongest, most obvious point in his mind. And, and most of the other fruit gets born out here. Hospitality is opening your home and family up. And so I just, I just want you to see the, the high priority there is on family, on the home, in this character. Um, I know that for me, the home, the family, is, is God's forge of sanctification. Again, it's the one place you don't get to pick who you're going to love. You know, you have to love these people. And, and so... We see a biblical picture of, of manhood and masculinity is about godliness. It's about ministry-mindedness. It's about family-centeredness. It's about shepherding and standing out front. It's about contentment. This is biblical masculinity. And these are the traits that mark a mature, godly man. These are the traits from which we're going to find our church leaders and elders. Where these traits coincide with a desire and a giftedness to minister, that's it. So the standard is high. Again, men, I just encourage you to embrace this, to make this your goal, the target you're aiming for on the wall. Women, encourage your husbands, raise your sons 
and train your daughters to value this. This is the standard that matters. This is the, the picture that God would have us grow into as men. Let's pray. Dear God, Lord, we just pray that you would give us the faith, the discipline to embrace this pattern, this model for who you would have us to be. Lord, I pray for the men in this room that you would um, encourage them. I see in so many ways the men in this church pursuing hard after this standard. Yet, And yet, Lord, I'm sure that there for all of us are areas that we're not really that zealous in our pursuit. So, Lord, grant us greater faith. Lord, help us to cast off the things that distract us, things that get in the way of what really matters. Help us to not adopt the world's standards, the world's, world's values, the, the world's measure of success, but measure ourselves according to the standard that you have given us, the standard that really matters, the standard of Jesus Christ. And in his name we pray. Amen.